The views and opinions expressed by guests on this program are not necessarily the views of Thinking Bigger Business Media, Inc. or its employees. Welcome to Smart Companies Thinking Bigger Radio. Get the inside scoop on how America's most successful business owners transformed their entrepreneurial vision into reality. And listen in as some of the top business minds in the country serve up practical advice, tips, and insights for growing your business. Now, here's your host, Kelly Scanlon. Good morning. Welcome to Smart Companies Radio. I'm Kelly Scanlon, publisher of Thinking Bigger Business Media. And our guest today is someone we're very excited about because he's going to be in Kansas City just a few days from now on Monday. His name is Mike McCallowitz, and he started his first business at the ripe old age of 24 with no experience, no contacts, no savings, yet he bootstrapped that startup into a multi-billion dollar business and then he did it two more times with two other businesses. He's currently the CEO of the Providence Group, a consulting firm that ignites explosive growth in companies that have plateaued. And one of the things that I think is, is one of the neatest things about Mike is that he was a recurring entrepreneur expert for CNBC's The Big Idea with Donnie Deutsch. He's also the small business columnist for the Wall Street Journal. He's a frequent television guest, a keynote speaker on entrepreneurship, and the author of the cult classic, The Toilet Paper Entrepreneur. And his newest book, which he's coming to Kansas City to talk to us about, is The Pumpkin Plan, and it's already been called The Next E-Myth for all of you Michael Gerber fans out there. So welcome to the show today, Mike. Thank you, Kelly. Thank you so much. Well, okay, 24 years old, you started this business, you grew it into a multi-million dollar business, so you're sitting there, you're 24 years old, did you think in your head, I'm I'm 24, I think at that time you had um, one child, you're married, and yeah, yeah. did you actually sit there and think, oh, I'm going to quit my job, start a business, and you know, in one year, two years, however long, it's going to be a multi-million dollar business. I mean, what were you thinking at the age of 24 with a child and a wife uh, starting out like that? Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, you know, I, I encourage, I don't encourage anyone to do it the way I did it. What I did was, <laughs> I was, uh, I was working at a, like a computer store. I, I literally couldn't get a business out of college. I got married and had a child very young, and. Um, I went out for drinks one night, just bemoaning that I was working at this place. And I was with another guy. And I was telling him I'm smarter. You know, I do all the work, and the boss is a is a jerk, and he makes all the money off my sweat. And I said, I'm gonna I'm gonna quit. I'm gonna start my own company, a competing company. And I literally had enough beer in me to have some liquid courage. And I I left a, a drunken slurring message saying, you know, I quit and I'll start my own company. <laughs> And uh, when the next morning, I, I begged for my job back, and my boss, really? yeah, oh yeah, I was like, I, I made a mistake, and the boss said, no, no kid, go, go, and uh, I was done, and I was terrified, and it's funny, you know, I've ultimately come to find that fear is a wonderful, wonderful motivator, uh, I, you can't sustain on fear, but at least as a kick out of the door, uh, it, it got me going, it got me mm-hmm. going mm-hmm. for a long time. Oh yeah, so, but then you did it two, two more times. And so you've had a total of three businesses, both of them multi-million dollar businesses. Um, have you found, is it, is it because you found a pattern? This, this might actually lead us into the toilet paper. Yeah, you're totally setting me up perfectly. Theory. So, so did you find that there was a formula there? Uh, and yeah, there, there, what is it? Yeah, there I is I want to know. 
Yeah. So, well, the, the, that's what actually what I talk about in the pumpkin plan. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so I'll give you kind of a, an insight into at least what I found worked for me was I found that ordinary the ordinary entrepreneur is similar to the ordinary pumpkin farmer, or maybe it's vice versa. The ordinary pumpkin farmer is similar to the ordinary entrepreneur. And most entrepreneurs, and this is how I got started too, we go after what I call the quantity game. You know, get more customers, get more, um, pursue more opportunities, more, more, more. Um, the funny thing is, while it's necessary in the very early stages because you don't have any customers to get any new customers a good thing, very quickly you have to find your pattern. You have to find your your piece that works and then start replicating it. Um, and so what, what colossal pumpkin farmers do is they are highly selective on the seeds, the, the things that work to grow a colossal pumpkin. And I found that uh, – Colossal entrepreneurs, people that become the dominant player in their niche or the the people that have these colossal companies like Apple and Google and all these things, all of them have found their seed, uh, and they really exploited that. They were highly selective. Instead of playing a quantity game, they played off of one kind of seedling. And a perfect example, because we all know Apple, you know, Apple played into the uniqueness of uh, Steve Jobs, and one of his uniquenesses uh, was that he had a button phobia. He was a f- afraid of buttons and uh, for his whole life. And, and so I like to say to any entrepreneur, you know, whatever you were made fun of in high school, that's probably something that makes you really unique. Exploit it. Yeah. But, so, so buttons. Okay, I have to stop yeah. you there. Buttons. Buttons as in buttons on your shirt or buttons as in the buttons you press on a phone or a device. What kind of buttons are you talking about? Yeah, so Steve Jobs was afraid of buttons on a shirt. Actually, you'll never really? see a photo. Yep. Yeah. You'll never see a photo of him wearing a shirt with buttons or pants. That's what, yeah, that's why he always wore the black uh, pullover. Yes, turtleneck. Yeah, okay. and he had a phobia. He had a legit phobia. Now, how this played in amazingly was that his fear or uncomfort, incomfort or uncomfort, I guess it is, with buttons resulted in that when his designers were presenting stuff like a mouse or the iPhone, he would always say, got to have less buttons. If you look at an Apple mouse, it'll have one big button where most mice today have like 15 buttons on it mm-hmm. iphone one button it was all because of that phobia that uniqueness so we got to exploit our uniqueness and we have to be true to it and then of course a couple other elements there must be customer demand for it and you must be able to scale it but if you overlap those three things uniqueness customer demand and scalability you can get a business that will just take off colossally so i'm sure that as as this, these farmers are destroying their the rest of their crop in order to nurture these larger pumpkins, that that has to be somewhat painful because I can just I mean I imagine that in order to follow your advice or to go with the theory that you're talking about, that you're going to be firing customers and you're going to be slashing away things that you may have burst at one point, but you're going to have to give up in order to put all the energy and all the nutrients, so to speak, into the the thing that's going to really pay off, become colossal. Isn't there exactly. a bunch of so, pain in that? It's so it's fascinating. Ordinary pumpkin farmers are in a quantity game. You know, the more pumpkins I can grow to sell for a dollar or two uh, or ten is a good thing. Colossal farmers, now this is an interesting fact, a, a seed from the blue ribbon winning pumpkin can sell for up to $1,500 a seed, which, wow. by the way, means an ounce of pumpkin seeds is worth about 100 times an ounce of gold in today's valuation of gold. But what's interesting is the ordinary farmers in the quantity game, the more pumpkins are growing on the vine, the better. Anything that's small and weak is actually helped along to grow, to give it some 
some potential. They, they, they work on it to help it to move it along. Mm-hmm. Colossal farmers, just as you indicated, Kelly, are the exact opposite. They identify what pumpkin has the most potential, and then they kill off everything else because they know another pumpkin on the vine is taking the nutrients. Uh, you know, another pumpkin is taking away the weeds. I'm taking away the uh, the sunlight, um, and weeds are taking away the sunlight from the colossal pumpkin. Now, the interesting parallel to entrepreneurs, it's ordinary entrepreneurs, uh, when they see other little pumpkins growing it, they go after it. Uh, these weeds of distraction, too, often are labeled as opportunities. And what I found is that the ordinary entrepreneur says yes to new opportunities 10 times more than they say no. Conversely, the most successful entrepreneurs say no 10 times more than they say yes. Huh. The focus on the colossal pumpkin all the time. Okay, so I, I have to ask you this. You also hear the opposite advice. Don't put all your eggs in one basket. <laughs> and it almost sounds like you're saying put all your eggs on or put all of your uh, uh, money into one pumpkin. So yeah. so how do you how do you uh, justify doing that? And, I mean, you're, you're, giving, you're, going, you're throwing that advice out the window, it sounds like. How do you justify that? Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I totally believe in putting all the eggs in one basket because it's what it is is that a colossal pumpkin, listen, they're not, every season you're not going to have a blue ribbon winter. And sometimes a colossal pumpkin grows and then it collapses under its own weight. It can grow too fast. Businesses can too. Sometimes yeah. the, the external environment, hailstorms, um, the weather doesn't play in favor. It's a bad season. It happens for businesses too. Yeah. The interesting thing is I found, as I, I studied on, uh, I'm sorry, farmers for about a year, pumpkin farmers, I found there's only one guarantee in the pumpkin farming industry. And what it is, is that an ordinary pumpkin farmer will never, ever grow a colossal pumpkin. Like you and I can drive down a country road past a pumpkin farm, and you'll never see like a miraculous giant pumpkin just growing out of the ground. No. <laughs> the, by, by doing the ordinary growing strategy, they have guaranteed never to have colossal success. Ordinary entrepreneurs, by doing the, you know, let's, let me serve every client I can, let me spread myself, let me be a generalist, guarantee they'll never have colossal success. But here's the even more fascinating part. The colossal pumpkin farmer, if, if the bad storm comes, if it falls under its own weight, if they don't win, they don't go in and say, you know what, uh, this process doesn't work. Instead, they say, the process works, it wasn't my season. And they go right back to the fundamental process of collecting the pumpkin, uh, treating a certain way, cutting off the weak stuff, because they know the process works. The outside elements that's outside of control didn't. Well, I found the same thing for colossally successful entrepreneurs. They, if they have a failure, they don't say, oh, my God, this will never work. I must become a generalist. They just say, this one wasn't my season. And they immediately go after the exact same process with a new iteration. And I can, I can prove this to you in the real world. If you look at any any successful company of any magnitude, I can guarantee you they've never grown by being generalists. They've put, quote, unquote, all their eggs in one basket. Give us some examples you, that we'd recognize. Um, Apple, right? So let's start with Apple. Yeah. Start Apple IIe, they made their big bet on the Apple II. Um, Apple computers made the big bet on the Apple yeah, IIe. Right. Now, there was other computers leading up to that. But what they did is they picked that computer, but they also picked a vertical, which was the educational market. That's how they got started. They yeah. got schools, and then they expanded out. So one computer, the flagship computer, the Apple IIe, to one target customer, schools, and they grew it explosively. 
Another classic example is Procter & Gamble, and I like to say them because they, they have like 10,000 different products today, mm-hmm. and people tell me they're, they're such generalists, obviously. No, Procter & Gamble started with two products, soap and candles, and they decided that that was way too many products to offer, and they dropped candles and only did soap. Then they picked a vertical, which was the military, and they only sold soap, which was ivory soap, that they found at ivory soap, to only one group, the military. Spread the dominated and then they expanded out to more general consumers and more products. Uh, Walmart. Walmart decided to service convenience only to uh, people that were less affluent in, in very small town America. They dominated that niche, and then they expanded into every city in the entire world. Um, yeah, yeah, every- and you could go on. Uh, these, these are great examples. Um, one of the other things I want you to, I would like for you to talk about is. Again, flying in the face of traditional wisdom, you hear all the time about, oh, make sure, if you don't do anything else, that you ask your clients for referrals. And you say, no, wrong, oh, wrong strategy there. Talk to us about that. Yeah, so so here's the problem with that. The ordinary farmer um, looks at the surface level opportunity. How well are the, is the foliage? How good are the leaves? The colossal pumpkin farmer looks under the ground to the root system. Well, the parallel I found in business is that Ordinary entrepreneurs who struggle in the day-to-day are looking for surface opportunities. The easiest one is client referrals. But here's the lesson you know, that we've all been told. Go to the client and say, how is my product or service? When the client says it's good, say, thanks. By the way, do you have any friends uh, or contacts that could also use this product or service? And in many cases, they'll say yes just to get you out of the room because it's very uncomfortable. But right. if you think about it for a second, what you're saying is you just collected money from this client and you're saying, I'm sorry, your money's not good enough. I need your friends. I need your contacts. It's, it's, it's over-asking, uncomfortable. You're potentially diluting that client. I mean, you're not going to be as available for them if they refer you elsewhere. And maybe you want a competitor. Now you can give them competitive secrets. It's a lose-lose for the client. Here's the better strategy. And to me, this was the turning point. I've applied this in my businesses, and this is why they took off. And I found every successful company uses a strategy just like this. They go for the root system. And the root system is what I call complementary vendors, other vendors who service the exact same client as you but offer different services. Uh So what you do is you go to your client and you say, hey, thank you for letting me be of service to you. What other vendors do you depend upon? They'll probably say, well, why do you want to know? And you say, if I meet those vendors, we can collectively learn about each other and serve you better. It's a no-brainer referral. Now you meet that vendor. Of course, they'll meet with you. You have a mutual client, after all. And then you say, hey, what what can I do to help service this client better? You build that relationship with that vendor. Well, guess what? They have probably other clients just like that mutual client you had. They become a huge referral source for you to identical clients. And by the way, if if you do this vendor uh, referral networking or this complimentary vendor uh, referral networking with your best client, they likely service other clients like them. It's the best way to clone your best clients. Uh, yeah, that's that's absolutely true. And just as an example, and this is a very very simple example of what I think you're talking about is if you are going in to rent a tuxedo for an event, and uh, because they're in the event business, they're they're uh, selling or renting formal wear to people who have to go to some kind of a black tie, whether it's a wedding or a dinner or whatever, there's likely to be a photographer that's needed. So that would be uh, one of the vendor referrals you're talking about. Is that correct? Or, or people who have uh, provide flowers, for example. Absolutely. Always necessarily the most obvious one. It, it, it can be these weird links. 
So when I was, I was, my first company was in computer networks. A very boring subject. I was the guy, you know, if your computer broke, I'd come out and break it even more, basically. <laughs> computer guy. And when I found out with my niche in computers, I was first a generalist. I was struggling. I then identified the hedge fund industry as where I had special ability. My business started taking off. And I did this vendor referral networking. Well, I found out the cleaning service had special access to brokerage houses and hedge funds. They need special security. So I became friendly with a cleaning company, and we were able to network together. We were able to uh, – they were able to introduce me to brand-new clients because they were in all these different hedge funds. Yeah. So it didn't have a technology company. It was a cleaning company, and I got referrals and opportunities. Mm-hmm. And it's amazing when you really start – thinking about the vendor network uh, that your clients probably have, you're right. I mean, it could go on and on and on. Um, I do want to get in. We're going we're gonna to hear, I'm going to say this again at the end of the interview, but we're going to hear more about the pumpkin plan from Mike when he's here in Kansas City on Monday, just a few, you know, just a few days from now. So if you don't have your tickets, make sure you go out to IThinkBigger.com this afternoon and get those still. Uh, just go to IThinkBigger.com, click on events, and you can still sign up and register because you can see he has a lot more to say and we just have a short time for the interview but i want to take just a couple of minutes before we uh close this out here and talk about the toilet paper entrepreneur because you are very well branded as the toilet paper entrepreneur and what what is that about why did you write uh, the first book and and what is a toilet paper entrepreneur yeah so so i wrote the first book a little bit out of frustration i i, I was watching all these entrepreneurs who were not going to start a business because they couldn't get a venture capitalist to come in. They couldn't get all the money. And I said, that's not really the reality of of entrepreneurship. You know, someone that funds you wants to see a degree of success. They need to understand yeah. on you. they got to know that you're bankable, that you have success. So you, in many cases, the very early startup phases, uh, you may have to start it on your own dime before you go out and seek funding. So I hated to see these people just sitting and waiting. And the other problem I had was that as I read through all these great magazines, like Fast Company, I love, Fortune, Inc., these magazines, I always saw what I call the media darlings. You know, Mark Zuckerberg is on the cover of every magazine. And people that I read got jaded in the wrong way. That they, they thought if I start a business, instantly I'll be a millionaire or a billionaire. Right. And not the reality. So I, I wrote The Toilet Paper Entrepreneur to explain that sometimes we're stuck in those what I call the three-sheet moments. Everyone's been there. Everyone survives. Uh-huh. And in this, we often are shorthanded. But the beautiful thing about being shorthanded is necessity is the mother of invention. Absolutely. When we don't have the contacts, we don't have the resources, we don't have the experience, we don't have the money, it's actually your biggest asset because now you become inventive and you can bust through a category, you can break into an industry a brand new way and stand out. That's what the book's right. about. Yeah, and, and and innovation, all the innovation that comes out of that struggle, and and the uh, making do with the resources that you have at your disposal. Uh, sometimes, well, I mean, just think back and uh, you know, around 2000 when we had the first uh, dot com bust, all of these companies were throwing just tons of money at. Well, I use companies loosely that had no no um, no idea really what they were doing, and and then it all just exploded but yet they had great break rooms and they had great game rooms but they just didn't have a a really viable business and so sometimes sometimes not having that money is is a good thing what would you say you know with all the perspective that you have now 
after three companies, multi-million dollars. What would you say are some of the mistakes that you see entrepreneurs making? Obviously, you said that sometimes they they uh, think they're going to you know get rich quick rather than get rich right, which is a phrase you like to use. But what what are some of the other mistakes that you see entrepreneurs making these days? I see a lot of entrepreneurs pursuing the trends, what are hot, ah. you know, and they, they, social media is hot. Um, I'm going to become a social media consultant or we're going to start offering social media services within my company. Here's the problem with that, Kelly. If what you do is not congruent with what excites you, your passion, um, you will not excel at it. I mean, imagine anyone going into social media versus a person that just thrives and loves social media, lives on social media. I don't care how much of an opportunity is there. If someone loves it and you don't, they are going to study harder. They're going to research harder. They're going to push harder. They're naturally going to have the energy. Mm-hmm. The, the biggest thing I see entrepreneurs as a mistake doing is going after the money but not after the passion. You have to go after what you love because that naturally gives you the energy and the desire to excel in the category. Yeah, a great great point there. And there are a lot of people who I, I'm a firm believer that you have to have passion to do what you want to do, but there are a lot of people who said, you know, that there's the passion doesn't have anything to do with it. Get somebody if you've got the if you can get the idea and you've got the resources uh, to get it going, you can have somebody else step in and who likes doing it. And then, then you're right. just, yeah, you can do passion <laughs> placement they call it, right? You can stick someone in that cares for it. But, right. But most of us aren't in that situation. No, not at all. Yeah. Yeah. So what what advice would you give? What action steps for any entrepreneurs who are listening today that they they want to grow their business uh, but they're stuck. Well, I hate using the economy as an excuse, but I know there are some people who've who've not uh, fared very well during the, the downturn. So either they want to grow their business but they're stuck or they're just oh, it maybe it's not even a cash flow problem. They're just overwhelmed. What would you tell them? So this sounds crazy, and this is I, I go into company after company saying this. You got to actually fire stuff. You got to fire clients, mm-hmm. and it's like, are you kidding me? I can barely make it day to day. I got to fire clients. Yes, and this is how you do it: sort your clients by revenue first. That's you know the money they're spending with you for the last twelve months. Then sort it by the, what I call the cringe factor: how much do you like or not like this customer? And then the final category is your hourly return on the client. How much money are you making based upon the time you spend with them? Often the clients that you like least, they're the whiners, they're the squeaky wheels, that generate the least revenue also cost you the most time. Those, those bottom, the bottom of your list of clients sometimes nets companies like negative dollars or five bucks True. an hour. You know? Those clients you have to fire. And what happens when you get rid of the worst client you have, you lose very little revenue, you sometimes gain profitability because you don't need as many resources now, and you absolutely gain time. With this extra time, you focus on cloning your best clients. You, you make more money that way, and you, you have to clear out the space, the time availability, the resources in order to pursue the best clients. Right. Businesses that are stuck in the struggle, just th- the next person knocks on the door, the next business comes in, I'll take you. They don't qualify them. They take on crappy clients. And the problem is they're stuck in the struggle for eternity. Yes, they're going to sit there playing with all their little tiny pumpkins while their competitors out there growing the colossal ones. So great advice, Mike. And for folks who may not be able to attend on Monday, and this is actually a national show, so we know that a lot of our listeners won't be in Kansas City Monday, where can they get a copy of The Pumpkin Plan and The Toilet Paper Entrepreneur? 
Yeah, so you can get the free uh, free chapter from each one at MikeMichalowitz.com. Give your best attempt at spelling on Google, and you'll find me. And then Amazon, Barnes & Nobles, and your local bookstore carry both books. Mike, it's been wonderful talking with you today. I'm very eager to meet you uh, on Monday. I know we have a, a great uh, a great uh, event coming up to feature you, and uh, just really looking forward to that. Thank you so much. Thank you. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.